morning. I'm excited about what I want to discuss with you and study with you this morning. Uh, and uh, I'm hopeful that some of the things that we talk about uh, will, uh, will inspire you and encourage you, because certainly uh, in preparing these things, that's what it has provided for me. Uh, let me begin with the question, who are we? By, by that I mean the church, uh, you and I, God's people. How would you describe the church of Jesus Christ? You know, the scriptures give us, uh, I think, more than one descriptive image of God's people. And all of them provide uh, some insight into the spiritual relationship we have with God. I want to, though, begin our lesson this morning by looking at two images of ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul tells Timothy he's writing this letter for purpose. There's a reason why, and I think we were able to take this particular passage maybe and extend it over the things we've been studying that we're going to study from Paul's letter to Timothy and maybe even to the second letter. He says that I hope to be able to come there personally, and we're not told that Paul was actually able to see Timothy again and meet him. I think that if what he says here is that he's not sure what's going to happen. If, the, if this letter was written after the close of the book of Acts and Paul's first imprisonment, then we don't know exactly what happened to Paul after that uh, for sure. Uh, but when we think about what he says here, it does certainly, I think, apply to us as we read the letter. And that is that Paul wants us to learn, he wanted Timothy to learn how to behave himself, how he should conduct himself in the church of the living God. So a Christian, one who's in the church is obligated to behave themselves in such a way that there is certain conduct that is fitting for those who are in the body of Christ or the church. The apostle addresses that several different ways in this letter. He talks about, and has already talked about, roles, men and women, the specific responsibilities that are given to them. Even in the time in which they assemble together, he's talked about the work of church leaders, and we've studied that together. He's going to talk about being an example to others and and the relationship that we have to money and how we deal with the, the things in our lives. And specifically the idea here, as we talked about, uh, I think, in our last lesson, Paul's interested in Timothy leading a godly life. And he's interested in, as well as those whom Timothy would teach of training themselves unto godliness. But I want to notice that there are two images here that are interesting in the connection that we think about the aspect of how we live. One is that the church is says, the, the, it, it indicates here that the church is the household of God. The word church translated household here, which is the word oikos in the Greek language, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is sometimes translated house. Uh, the verb form of that means to build, and so the aspect here of a physical structure sometimes is in view. It gives the image sometimes of a building, but there are other times in which the word is translated as household, and that's, what is, that's how it's translated here in this passage, and that word makes us think not of a physical house, but rather of a family. And that's significant because the church of the New Testament is pictured several times as a family. It's also pictured as a building or a structure, the aspect of spiritual structure that's built up uh, for the purpose of worshiping God. But there are times in which the Bible talks about the church, the people in the church being a family. And we often maybe describe ourselves that way. But the church is people. It's not a physical building. And we are a family. We are connected to each other. Because we are a family, connected to each other through the work of Christ, 
that we ought to treat one another that way. We ought to behave a certain way because we are a family. We are to be devoted to each other. And because we are devoted to God, then that should extend. And that's the point I want to sort to keep it, to keep in our thoughts here as we go through this process of looking at these passages. Yet when Paul says that we are the household of God, he's touching him on the aspect of our personal devotion to one another and our personal devotion to God himself. But then he also says in this passage that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The word pillar means support, and buttress, sometimes translated by the English word ground, means something that stays or something that does not move. So the idea is support. And the, and the picture that is depicted us is that God's people hold up or support the truth. Now, he's not indicating that we create the truth or that we are what, you see, brings about God's truth into the world. God is the source of all truth. Nor is he presenting this aspect that the truth would fall if we didn't hold it up. The truth is the truth. <coughs> but he's pointing to, in the use of this terminology, the idea of cause or purpose. What is the church all about? Who are we? We are individuals joined together into a family of God who support or buttress the truth, who hold it up. Now, what that, I think, implies to us, and certainly should, is that everything that we do together as a church, everything that we practice and that we teach, that we uphold, is to be rooted in truth. We're to search for the truth and know the truth and not trust on our own intellect or our own intuition, but rather... Look to God for the truth by which we can uphold and practice our relationship to God. But the question as I look at this, what truth is he talking about? If the church is the buttress of the truth, if it is the support and stay of the truth, what truth is involved here? You know, God placed a lot of truth in the world. He placed truth in the atom, in the vast universe. He placed truth in the human body. And as we live in this world, we discover that, don't we? We can look inside the microscope lens and we can see truth about how things are connected together and the genetics of it and the DNA. We can take a telescope and look out into the stars, the vast universe, and we find truth there. Just recently saw a picture of a black hole, something you've never seen a picture of before, and scientists tell us there it is. We took a picture of something 53 million light years away. Fascinates me that there's so much to be learned about the world that we live in. We've discovered fascinating things about diseases, about the weather, about the depth of the ocean, about the creatures that live there, about even the human body, that our grandparents had no idea that that truth was there, that it was to even be known. But we know it. Well, is that the truth he's talking about? Is this the truth that matters? The truth that we see in the universe, the truth that we see in our own bodies, the truth that science discovers and digs up, is this the truth that really matters? In the final analysis, as we look at this, we recognize that that's not what Paul's talking about. That truth is fascinating and certainly helpful. And in terms of sustaining physical life, may it sometimes be absolutely essential. But in the spiritual realm, that truth is inconsequential. It is insignificant to know about the universe, about the atom. When Paul says that God's church, His people are to uphold the truth, he's talking about a truth that's much more significant than what you are and I are able to discover. And that's precisely how Paul describes it in the next verse. In verse 16, Paul goes on to say, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. 
He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The truth that the church is to uphold is truth about us, but it's not truth that was discovered by us. It's not truth that we came up with or that we found. The truth that Paul describes here that is so consequential and so significant on which the church of the Lord is built is the mystery of godliness, he describes. The NIV begins in verse 15 and verse 16 by saying, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Other translations say, undeniably, most certainly, all would confess that this truth, this mystery of godliness, is great. Well, that's what I want. That's what I'm thrilled to talk about this morning. That's what I want to try to get us to see as we look at these passages, is that what the mystery of godliness is, is great truth. Undeniably, certainly, without question, all of us should be willing to confess that this truth on which the kingdom of God is built is great. Well, what is this mystery? What is the mystery of godliness? When we use the word mystery, we're usually thinking and referring to something that's hidden, maybe obscured, that's not easily seen, or maybe in some sense it's unknowable until you go through a process and then maybe the mystery is solved. So we read a mystery novel. And what we mean by a mystery novel is that this is a story that the outcome is not obvious. We have to read through and maybe get to the end of the book and, or the end of the movie or whatever it might be. And then we get, you see, then we get the truth that we've been seeking or the mystery is revealed. In the Bible, the word mystery is understood differently. The Greek word mysterion denotes that which has formerly been hidden, but now it's been revealed. And so the aspect of a mystery, as the word is used in the New Testament, is not something that is hidden. In fact, it's just the opposite of that. It's something that maybe that was hidden, but now it's revealed. So what it emphasizes in the word use of the word mystery, and particularly in Paul's writing, is not the aspect of something that's unknowable. He's not telling us this is something you can't understand. This is something that is mysterious in our language. But rather he's telling us that this is something that was formerly unknown, but now is knowable. Now you can know this, and more of the fact now it's been revealed so that you should know this. It is truth revealed. So in the Bible it's a mystery, not because it's hidden, but because it is revealed. And so what we recognize in all of this is that a mystery, in the biblical use of the term, is something that could not be discovered on its own through human reasoning. It's not something that you and I could go find, we could dig in the earth and find it, we could find it with a telescope, or we could look at ourselves and our own reasoning and figure it all out. There's no philosophical basis to the mystery as it's described in the Bible. This great truth that Paul is going to talk about here is something that was revealed to us. And that's the only way we could possibly have known what he describes here is that God would tell us about it. It was secret in that sense, but now it is made known. And I don't know if that thrills you or not, but that thrills me. The idea that the most significant truth that I could ever know about myself and the world that I live in and what's to come is something that God has been willing to tell me, something that I could not have known apart from him. Now what we recognize in the use of this term is that mystery in Paul's writing so many times refers to the gospel message. If you've read through those, the, the, those six things that are described as the mystery of God, verse 16, you probably put that together that he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the life of Jesus. What I already know about Jesus is found in those very uh, phrases that are contained there. We're going to talk about that. 
But to understand first that the mystery describes the gospel message because the gospel message has been revealed. Something that could not have been discovered or known by man now has been made known by God. And that which was given to Paul and given to the other apostles by the Holy Spirit is just that. It is a mystery revealed. It is a story with great spiritual significance that's undeniably great. At the end of the book of Romans, Paul said this, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for the obedience to the faith. Paul says God wants you to obey Him and so He's made known to you so that you can have total total devotion and faith in Him. He's made known to you a mystery that before had not been known but now it's made known through prophetic Scripture. Not only to you but to all nations this message has been made known. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Paul again uses that terminology but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery a hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory. He goes on to say God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. In Ephesians chapter three, in chapter in Ephesians chapter three, which is probably the, the, I think the most um, the prominent passage on the aspect, the understanding of what the Bible means by mystery, and the aspect of revelation, Paul says, "How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I briefly already written, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ." which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. Later on in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul talked about the mystery of the faith. Do you put that all together and it's not hard to recognize that when Paul uses the term mystery... He's talking about the revelation of the gospel story. He's talking about what God made known to the, through the apostolic message. That which the church in Acts chapter 2 was totally devoted to and given to. The continuing apostolic doctrine. Now, what Paul said though is that this was a mystery of godliness. He didn't say it's the mystery of the gospel in this passage. He says it's a mystery of godliness. Well, what does he mean by that? How is the gospel message a mystery of godliness? Remember last week we defined godliness, the word eusebia, as piety or devotion towards God. Some translations use the word religion there, and I don't totally object to that particular uh, element though, but but I think religions sometimes have uh, negative connotations or at least different connotations in our own language. Then the aspect of devotion. Our religion is to be entirely devoted to God. And so that's what godliness is all about. The godly person lives a God-centered life. Everything that he does, all the decisions that he makes, where he goes, who he associates with, how he talks, how he uses his resources of his life, all of that is centered around what God wants. He's always asking the question, what does God want me to do? He wants to please God above everything else. Now that's what Paul wants Timothy to become. That's what he wants Timothy to teach others. Is, is as we said in chapter 4 verse 7 that he would train himself or train yourself unto godliness to live God-centered lives now that's the, that's the purpose or the intent of the gospel message the mystery is not godliness the mystery rather is that which is the, found, is the foundation of godliness godliness is based upon the mystery, the revelation. If you would be a godly person, if you would train yourself unto godliness, then you must know the mystery. You must come to understand what is the mystery of godliness. Now, what, in what way is that true? 
Why is the gospel story, as you and I know it, in the gospel message, why is it a revelation of the mystery of godliness? Well, I think what we recognize is it reveals what God has done for us. It reveals what God has done. The past, the history, the revelation of Christ is a historical account. We have four biographies of Jesus Christ, of things that happened years and years and years ago. What significance does that have to our lives today? Well, it's a revealed mystery. It is a message made known to us in our own time and own culture through Scripture so that we can become godly people. And we think about the gospel, we need to think about it in many ways sometimes in exactly the way Paul's presenting it here. Sometimes we talk about the gospel. Have you heard the gospel? Do I, I need to teach people about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what we think about first is one's response to the message. Hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, be baptized. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, in a sense it is, but that really is more specifically the response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a proper response. It's what the Bible teaches about how a person would respond or react to the revelation of the good news about Jesus Christ. But the gospel message is first and foremost about Jesus himself. It's about the person and the work of Christ. It's not just about what we do, but more specifically about what God has already done. Now we know that if we learn that and we understand that and we come to recognize what God has done, that that's a pathway to being devoted to Him. The one thing that will draw you close to God is to go to Calvary, right? One one way that you'll become devoted and certainly, I I think, entrust your life to Him is to know what He's He's already done for you and to see the sacrifice of Jesus in the empty tomb. So godliness, the gospel is a message of godliness because it tells us what God has done. It also reveals the only godly one, and that is Jesus Christ. Again, focusing on the aspect of the person of Jesus and what Jesus has done on our behalf, He alone lived a fully God-centered life. He alone is what God wanted fully. He is the revelation of what God is all about. Notice in in verse 16, 1 Timothy 3.16 where we're studying, that the description begins with the word He in some translations. Now, King James Version and others say you have the word God there. The literal Greek terminology is the pronoun who, which is also sometimes translated in the masculine he. And so when you look at the Greek terminology in terms of what's there, the subject is introduced before all of these other six participles follow. The subject is introduced as he who. He who was manifested in the flesh. He who was vindicated by the Spirit. Now that tells us something. We might expect that Paul's going to talk about godliness and what the mystery of godliness is, he'd begin with a what? Well, what is godliness? Well, this is what it is. That's not what Paul says. He says the mystery of godliness is a he. He who was manifested in the spirit and manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the spirit. Now, he does in the context address the disciplines of, of, of being a godly person. We talked about some of those last time. And this letter is full of directives where God gives, Paul gives Timothy commands to be obeyed and provides parameters for living before God. But when we think about this aspect of godliness itself as it relates to the message of the gospel, the revealed gospel, Paul would have us first think about Christ. Now, that's borne out as well in what Peter says. As he begins his second epistle, Peter says, His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who calls you by glory. He said there are some things that pertain to godliness. 
And God's revealed all of them. But how do we get there? Through the knowledge of Him who lived the godly life. Through the knowledge of Him who is the only godly one. Now, with the time we have left, I want to look at the elements that Paul mentions here that define the mystery of godliness. Paul defines this mystery in six stanzas. I call them stanzas because most scholars believe and agree that the next words in this verse are really are, may very well reflect the Hebrew hymn, possibly sung by the early Christian, that it's a song. That doesn't necessarily come out as a song to us in the text itself. But most believe because of the because of the poetic, the Hebrew poetic nature of the words, that it very well could be that what that's what Paul is doing here. And that that shouldn't surprise us or maybe in any way uh, I think uh, uh, make us uneasy because there are times in which at least I've heard individuals preaching a sermon and just start singing or they'll take the words of a song and put it into a sermon and use the words as the very, the very text of what they're teaching so for this to be, us, to be assumed as some do that this is an early hymn and that Paul utilized it in inspired scripture I, I don't think should in any way disturb us but what it does help us to, in terms of looking at the text itself, if that's true, then it helps us sort of maybe to put some things together. Because there are different ways of viewing the, the words that are found in these stanzas of verse 16. And I'm going to suggest them to you, not necessarily to be technical about this, but to recognize that when the Holy Spirit gave the apostles words to put together, sometimes they were put together in the form of poetry, so they would bring out one or two pronounced points that could not be missed or to emphasize through contrast and parallel certain truths. So there are, one way in which this verse sometimes uh, is viewed is that it is, it is a single standard with six different elements. So there are six phrases all to be took at, taken individually. Another way is to, that sometimes it's mentioned is that this is really, you see, three standards of two lines each. The NIV sort of takes grammatically this particular approach that Jesus was manifest in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and proclaimed among nations. He was believed on the world and taken up in glory. That the first stanza represents the distinction between the contrast between flesh and flesh and the Spirit. The second pair contrasts nearness to God. Angels are near, nations are far away. The third pair contrasts earth and heaven. That there is the world and then there's glory. And that this presents to us the transitions and the contrast in Jesus' life in terms of the stanzas themselves. Others suggest that what is here is two stanzas of three lines each, and that this has to do with, uh, with a, a connection or a contrast between us and Christ, or the church and Christ. That he was manifested in the flesh and vindicated in the spirit and seen by angels, and that his message given to the church was proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, and he was taken up into glorious confirmation of that message. So that the two standards and the three uh, three elements of that represent, you see, this aspect of contrast. And I throw that out there for your consideration, not because I think it's that absolutely essential to understanding what the mystery of godliness is, but it intrigues me and sometimes thrills me to see how God puts things together in the text to give us a fuller understanding, a better comprehension of what actually is being presented here. I want to look at these individually. Because I think there's in each one of these lines an important element of godliness in our life before him. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. The word manifested means to be revealed. It doesn't mean to be created. Rather, the word itself means something that already exists that's made known. So there's something behind the curtain. You pull the curtain away and there it is. Did that mean it didn't exist before you saw it? No, it was manifested or revealed to you. 
Paul's choice of this word is a reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. Not only his incarnation, that he came in the flesh, but the fact that he existed before he came in the flesh. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that although he existed, Jesus existed in the form of God, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant who was made in the likeness of man. In John, John says, you see, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Profound thought, is it not? The pre-existent Christ, the divine one, the one of the three, coming and entering into human flesh, that God was revealed in a human body. Flesh that withers like the grass. Flesh that gets sick and gets hurt. Flesh that dies. Flesh that's dust. We could not know apart from revelation of God that God Himself would ever do that, would ever come into this world and make Himself a man. That God Himself would come into this world and be a helpless baby. You ever held one of those little babies? Can't take care of himself? Cry all the time? Have to be cared for every moment of the day? Now think about God being that way. That's what Paul said. At least part of it. The one who feeds the world would go hungry. The one who created and controls the universe would suffer and die like a man at the hands of others. So that's the great mystery that's revealed. That's something that you and I could never have known unless God had revealed it to us that He, you see, came and was manifested in the flesh. The disciples struggle with that a little bit. Suffice it to us to just show us the Father, Jesus. Just show us the Father. And what did Jesus say to that? He didn't say, look up. He said, look here. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because God was manifested in the flesh. What an enormously great mystery that is revealed to us. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated is rendered as justified in some translations. And the word, the, the word uh, from the original Greek word is many times translated by the word justified, which the aspect of means to be pronounced innocent or to be regarded as righteous. Now Jesus was sinless, so he didn't need to be justified in the way that you and I need to be justified. So the word vindicated may be a better rendering. And that's the way I would see this, that what the text is telling us is Jesus was proven to be right. He was proven to be vindicated from every accusation made against him when he was here. And I see that at least in two ways. One is the work of the Spirit in Jesus' life. That the Spirit vindicated Jesus by showing that He was truly who He said that He was. Jesus received the Holy Spirit without measure and it was through the Spirit that He spoke and it was through the Holy Spirit that He worked miracles and performed signs that attested to His deity. Later on in Acts chapter 2, Peter says in the first sermon, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested, and that word means proven or accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did did through Him in your midst as you yourselves also know. So Peter says, this is who Jesus is and this is the great mystery is that He was proven to be who He was through the Spirit. I think about Mark 2. There's a real, I think, a real event here in Mark 2 that Jesus is preaching and the crowds are so big and so so much around Him that people can't even get in the door of the house where He's preaching. And so these fellows take their friend and take off the roof of the house and they bring this man who's paralyzed down through the roof. Can you imagine that happening? You know, we're all sitting here, we hear somebody on the roof, and they're taking off the shingles, and they're drilling a hole in the roof, and all of a sudden, he, I think I would be distracted by that. That here's this guy that comes down through the roof in the midst of all the people, and he's laying there, and Jesus stops his sermon and turns and says to him, what? Son, your sins are forgiven. 
There's a man laying on the ground, can't walk, couldn't come in the building, had to be brought by rope to be let down. The, and Jesus' first words to him is, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know what Jesus was preaching about at that time, but I would think that probably caught the attention of everybody that was there. What do you mean his sins are forgiven? Who Nobody can forgive sins but God. The Pharisees objected. He's a blasphemer. He's talking about the forgiveness of sins. Only God can remove sin. And so Jesus turns to them and says, which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, pick up your bed and go home? And Jesus said, pick up your bed and go home. And he did. He picked up his bed and he walked out. Well, what was that? That was Jesus being vindicated by the Spirit. He said He was God because He claimed the ability to forgive sins. He was proven to be God by the Spirit Himself and the working of it. He was vindicated by the Spirit. And then there's the work of Jesus in His resurrection. When He came out of the grave, what did that mean? Paul says in Romans chapter 1, concerning His Son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. You see, He was manifested in the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He was vindicated by the Spirit. So when He came out of the grave, He was proven to be everything that He said that He was. There were no more accusations to be made against the Lord once He stepped out of that tomb. He was proven to be sinless. He was seen by angels. Angels are abundant in Jesus' life and mission. From their song of praise, witnessed by the shepherds at His birth, in Luke 2, to the strengthening of Jesus in the wilderness, after His temptation in Matthew chapter 4, to the comfort that He received from the angel in Gethsemane at His greatest hour of agony, when His disciples were sleeping, the angels were there comforting Jesus in Luke chapter 22. And then there's that rolling away of the stone. Who did that? angels were there over and over again he was seen by angels which typified the aspect that God was aiding Christ in his mission that God was with him but let me suggest another thing that may be present in this aspect of the seen by angels is that this points to a heavenly audience the idea that something was going on in the life of Jesus and this great mystery that you and I could not have known but the angels were seeing it happen in the spiritual realm they were recognized that this was God coming in the flesh something they'd never seen happen before and the angels, it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, they, the angels desired to look into these things. They couldn't figure it out what's going on. They wanted to know more. God had revealed things to the prophets and the apostles that now the angels wanted to know about. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that he, was, that he was called to preach the mystery of Christ among the Gentiles. But this mystery was designed to reveal God's power and wisdom to principalities and powers in high places. This is not just about showing us who he was and what he was doing. The angels were watching what God was doing. And that introduces to the next point, this aspect of the mystery, that he was proclaimed among the nations. So here you have something going on that could not have been understood apart from the revelation of God that was seen by angels, but is also proclaimed among people, nations. So there's a heavenly audience, the mystery revealed. Now there is a human audience as well. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes in the baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. You know, we're familiar with those words, aren't we? The going of the gospel all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That doesn't shock us. But let me tell you something. If you were a Jew of the first century, those were shocking words. And we know the apostles were taken back by it. How long did it take for the apostles to recognize that all men would receive this message? That this wasn't just for the Jews, but it was for all the nations. 
even though it was alluded to in the Old Testament. It was a mystery that salvation would come to all the world. Peter had to see a vision three times and be sent to to the house of a centurion to be able to come to that realization. Now what I want to suggest to you in this real quickly is that do we see our part in that? This great mystery. The preaching of the gospel to the lost is as much an integral element of the, of the mystery of godliness as the incarnation and the miracles of Jesus. I didn't have anything to do with the incarnation. Have nothing to do with the miracles of the New Testament on which the truth is vindicated or truth. But if the mystery of the gospel is that this message is real is be claimed of the nation, that's me. Who is to do that? The church. Because the church holds up the truth. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. If this message is to be taken to the world, all the world is to hear it, then you and I must do it. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to believe to save those that believe. And how shall they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? What Paul says. This great mystery involves us. But in connection with that, He was believed on in the world. Though Jesus was rejected by His own, He was handed over to the Gentiles to be crucified on the cross. In the final analysis, He was believed on in the world. And you think about that today. The influence of the name of Jesus Christ and the religion of Jesus Christ on the world in which we live. And the story of that in the book of Acts is phenomenal. That there were those you see who who reviled him and called for his crucifixion who thought he was a blasphemer, the horriblest man to die, the most ignominious death that possibly puts it on a man who 40 days later, 50 days later, were calling them their king and falling down before him and being submissive to his will. All of Satan's efforts to thwart the mission of Jesus and stop the consequential growth of his body have been impotent through the world, have they not? Because people are still here. Jesus is believed on in the world. That's a, a phenomenal mystery revealed. How could that happen? How could we know about it? Unless God had told us. And then he's taken up in glory. You remember this scene? And now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who said also, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in a like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In Mark's account of that, he tells us that Jesus ascended heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. Jesus finished his work. And that's an enormous mystery that you and I could never have known. We could never have been privy to the spiritual impact of the mystery on our own life and the victory of that resurrection that God had not made it known to us. So what's he tell us? He tells us that Jesus actually ascended to heaven. The physical event took place and we put our confidence that that actually happened. That disciples watched Jesus go up in the air. But there's more to it than that. After Jesus' body passed beyond the clouds, un- unable to be seen by human eyes, the scriptures tell us the revelation of God is that he is sitting at the right hand of God right now. The apostles didn't wonder where Jesus was after he ascended back to heaven. They were scratching their head thinking, I'm not sure where he went to. Because the mystery revealed was, he's at the right hand of God. He's exalted to the throne. 
Paul wrote Philippians chapter 2, passage we looked at just a few moments ago, that Jesus humbled himself, became obedient even to the point, even to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also exalted him and bestowed on him the name in which every name, that above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the impact of that event. That's what it means that Jesus was taken up into glory. Everyone will bow to the knee of Jesus, will bow knee to Jesus. He is above all things. Now, when I see that, and I recognize that that's what's taken place, that that's what's been revealed to me, that I could not know any other way of the revelation to God, what's that lead me to? Let me suggest this to you. I can devote myself to Him completely because the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. That's why the gospel is a mystery unto godliness. Because it opens the human heart to completely giving themselves over to the work of God in their life. Brings the submissiveness and humility that God desires and the obedience that God absolutely requires of men towards God. It's not through telling us, telling me just how poor I am or telling me ultimately who I am, but rather me telling me about in the mystery of godliness what God has done and who God is. We can be what God wants us to be because Jesus is alive. Because he is not dead. We are the church, and that's the phrase that was in the middle of verse 15. We are the church of the living God. The writer of Hebrews proclaims, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. Earlier, that same writer said that Jesus was perfected, and having become the author of eternal salvation to all those obey him. See, that's what the mystery is all about. The perfection of Jesus. The taking up of Jesus. The exaltation of Jesus. And when Jesus was perfected, he became the author of all those who will be godly. Of all those who will submit to him. And be what he, they want, he wants them to be. Will you do that this morning? Are you ready for godliness? For complete devotion to Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you recognize that Jesus came as a man manifested in the flesh, that He was proven without a doubt to be exactly who He said to be because He was vindicated in the Spirit, that He was seen by angels, and that that Word that which the angels desired to look into was spread not only to them, but ultimately to all nations. His Word was proclaimed and made known through the apostolic teachings. And that even in the day in which we live, we can look around and recognize that that message did not leave, you see, individuals without hope. That it, they believed it. And when individuals were believing that message and willing to turn to Him, they received the full blessings of that revelation. And that Jesus was taken up into glory to live for, to live for His people, to intercede for His people. And that's where we stand today. Jesus is not dead. He is at the right hand of God. We obey Him while we stand in our shame.